Hey everyone, James here again. Just heads up for anyone that missed last week's episode that I have taken over Hodinkee Radio from my good pal, Stephen Pulverant, and we're trying something new. Pulling from all sides of Hodinkee's impressive pool of talent, the next several episodes will bring you inside Hodinkee with in-depth chats about our biggest stories, conversations from all over the world of watches, and all the enthusiasm that you can expect from a revolving group of our team. I also just wanted to say a quick but heartfelt thanks to all of you who reached out in support of Hodinkee Radio's new format and would-be host, myself. Each and every message was so kind and your support means so much. But hey, as it's probably too early to start phoning it in, let's get to it. It's the first show after Geneva Watch Week, so today we've got watches and more watches, and then, you know what, even more watches. To go over all of this with me, please welcome my panel of esteemed co-workers. First up, Hodinkee Senior Editor and my consigliere for all things food and drink, the ever-affable John Buse. How are you, John? Doing well, man. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, next up, he goes by Iceman. I lovingly call him Chili P. Don't let the stern demeanor fool you, because he's got a heart of pure gold. Another editor, it's Cole Pennington. How are we doing, Cole? I'm doing all right. Thank you for saying I don't have a heart of ice either. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> nah, pure gold. I know you. Finally, I like to say he's got the flow and the know as his watch knowledge is easily as impressive as his truly incredible hair. We've got brand editor Logan Baker. What's going on, Logan? Hey, man. Excited to be on the show. Yeah, it should be a fun one. And, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you fellows on the show to uh, chat about it with me. So, I mean, what we're talking about on this episode is arguably the big return of the Swiss Watch Fair with Geneva Watch Days after, you know, an extensive kind of international break from these sorts of things, at least at, at the level we were used to previously. John, you spearheaded a lot of our coverage of the show. You know, from your point of view, how are you feeling about Geneva Watch Days? How, how do you think the show has gone? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been uh, a pretty strong show. I think, um, you know, the number of brands showing and the number of watches that we saw, I don't think quite matched what we saw from Watches and Wonders, but... We did see a lot of participation from a lot of big brands. We saw Bulgari dropped a lot of stuff. Ulysses Norden dropped a whole new collection. You know, overall, some really neat watches. You know, MBNF had a had a cool clock. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into all of like the specifics of the stuff, but I think, you know, for a show that is not in one place that is both digital and um, physical, but is kind of like spread out through uh, throughout the town of Geneva, I thought um, it was pretty well organized and um, with, you know, some cool watches. So what stood out for you? I know you covered a, a lot of it firsthand. Uh, what was kind of the stuff that actually you saw the assignment or picked to put your name next to it on a spreadsheet that you're actually kind of excited to read about and learn about? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, the big brand showing here, or, you know, certainly one of the big brands showing here was Bulgari. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, they had uh, some new Octos uh, in the Octo Roma collection, not the Octo Finissimo. They, they did Finissimos earlier in the year. But, you know, the Octo uh, Roma World Timer was very cool, uh, featuring, a, you know, a new in-house World Time movement from those guys. They had a central tourbillon, which, you know, while very much a Bulgari, if you look at it, it kind of hints at uh, the old Daniel Roth legacy uh, of the Bulgari brand in a way that you don't see a lot. You tend to see the the, the, the Genta side of things coming through more on that side. And, and granted, it is an Octo, so, you know, you see that as well. You know, and then, of course, Bulgari had a bunch of ladies' watches, too. They had uh, the Divina Mosaica watches and the Diva's Dream, which are really all about, you know, Bulgari as a jewelry maker, which, you know, they've been really doing amazing stuff as a watchmaker. But, you know, 
you have to remember that their core competency and where they came from is jewelry. And uh, they really kind of hit it out of the park with those, including um, some really nice gem set pieces. Yeah, that's them kind of sticking to their roots, but also still a flex in the watch space. So that's what we'd get it in uh, in Geneva rather than through some other release. That's uh, Some of those are really cool. And it's another one of those things where it's another yet another example of like, Watches that I think if you just saw them quickly in your feed or maybe on your Instagram, you'd scroll right by, but they're worth a closer look because even if they're not maybe meant for you, they're still really fantastic uh, pieces of watchmaking and examples of what makes a, a company like Bulgari so talented and, and capable of doing stuff like that. And then probably, you know, for me, like the most fun watch was uh, the return of Mickey Mouse uh, to the Gerald Genta watches. You know, Bulgari in the last few years has uh, made a habit of, of releasing one Gerald Genta branded watch per year to keep things fun. And uh, this year it was, you know, arguably the most iconic Gerald Genta uh, watch of them all. Uh, Gerald Genta branded watch, I should say. Not, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a, there's a lot of icons there. <laughs> yeah, he made some other icons too, but they, they would be under other brand names in Mickey Mouse. Mm-hmm. And yeah, of, you know, following Character Watch Week, you know, to have a, a brand new kind of high profile Mickey Mouse watch. And it's a pretty, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of a taste for Mickey Mouse on a watch dial, but it is a good looking watch, you know, regardless of what the, say, the handset or the characterfulness of it is. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, yeah, I think the thing that's always stood out to me is kind of cool about the Genta Mickeys is that they're so like undeniably high end, whereas many, uh, many of the character watches and Mickey watches in particular that you see out there. Uh, while really cool and fun, they're they're more like um, you know three digit prices. Uh, but the gentle ones from the beginning, you know, the first crop of them that came out had like diamonds on them. They they have always been you know trying to elevate cartoon, kitsch kind of uh, you know mass market entertainment fun in a in a you know really resolutely um, luxurious way. And I think James, you brought up a, a kind of fun point there that it did come on the heels of Character Watch Week, and that was a total coincidence. I mean, I, I'm I'm not sure who came up with the original idea for Character Watch Week, but we didn't know about this Bulgari until you know right before Geneva Watch Days, and that kind of that worked out really nicely. I think you know maybe maybe uh, the LVMH brass is keeping keeping their eyes on us. <laughs> They're like, oh, get it out quick. Slap Mickey on something. <laughs> or it's the other way around. And they had a secret meeting with our executives, unbeknownst to all of us, and they planned everything. You know, you never know. A shadowy Mickey watch. <laughs> There's a shadow government within Hoding. The, yeah. the Mickey Mouse cabal. Uh, the conspiracies <laughs> abound. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, so if we if we look at the, the wider Bulgari kind of spec... What, what do you guys think of the world timers? I, I, I think, I mean, I love a world timer and a, the, a modern take on a world timer will always be interesting to me. And I, I think it really suits the watch nicely. Yeah, I thought it was really, really quite nice. You know, the, the first thing that I'll say, I will say when I saw it was it reminded me of a, another world timer that came out uh, about a year or two ago. And that was the, the Chopard LUC world timer. Yeah, for sure. Um, it kind of played with the same kind of finishes. Obviously, the Okta case is very different, but I just, I kind of saw that and I saw some, you know, kind of inherent similarities. And I I really like both of those watches, but um, I did kind of notice the, that comparison. But overall, I thought it, it's a successful watch doing kind of what it needs to be for someone that wants a complicated Okta Roma. I think it works. Yeah, and pricing is also under ten grand, which John, like, that's kind of the line that the Octo kind of sits at, right? Like sometimes a little over, sometimes like substantially over, but for the most part, that's the zone. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think uh, yes. I mean, sometimes you have like six figure watches, right? Yeah, way more. Yeah, but like I think, 
Generally speaking, um, there are good deals in um, Octoroma, Octofinissimo. You know, I can think of competition for those watches that would cost more, you know. So uh, they, they always feel, uh, or most of the time, I would say, feel like really reasonably priced. Yeah, and I, I guess if, if you wanted to spend more money, you could always go with the uh, Turbion, right? Exactly, right. I do think it's really cool just to see how many uh, Central Turbions we are seeing these days. I mean, we, we saw the Cross Studio one uh, a couple weeks ago that really builds on an interesting patent that Marco Tedeschi worked on. Um, I spoke with him recently and kind of learned more about that watch that I'm hoping to put into uh, a different story soon. There's the the Kerberdons Whirlybird that uh, is the largest Turbion in uh, current production. Uh, there's, of course, Omega, who kind of uh, has their cent- own central tourbillon patent. And now we have Bulgari in the mix. So I think there's a really interesting mix of kind of two major label brands in uh, Omega and Bulgari with, you know, producing an option in the central tourbillon genre or category. And then we have kind of these two smaller independent firms in uh, Curvedons and Cross Studio. Um you know, formerly Romain Jerome, RJ, right. but uh, kind of doing their own things under the Cross Studio uh, banner. And Cole, I don't know, maybe you stand in a similar position for me about you know, generally not caring a ton about tourbillons, but this is a good looking watch. Where, where do you land on the on the new stuff from Bulgari? The truth of the matter, I didn't really have enough time to really think through it, and I haven't seen the watches. However, I will say before joining Hodinkee, didn't pay much attention to Bulgari, after the Octo did. So now every release I think about more and more, and I at least look forward to kind of working through it mentally. And I would say, I don't know, I I, I like the watch overall, but there were other watches in this show that I think stood out to me that I have more more thoughts on. So take us there. What what what, uh, what stood out for you from the list? Well, I'm going to leave the Doxa for you to talk about, but that certainly stood out to me. So Yeah, I think it's a cool looking thing. Oh, it's a great, great looking thing. And I covered the predecessor during 80s watch week. So Right. Yeah, that was a good Aubrey era story I used uh, to link back when I wrote mine so I didn't have to write a history. <laughs> well, you're welcome, James. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, some of the Oris pieces stood out to me. For sure. And, and we'll go from Bulgari all the way to the other end of the spectrum. I was assigned to write this one on Rega, which I thought was super fascinating. And again, is represents the best of what Oris tends to do, which is storytelling and encapsulating an idea, an organization, a cause, something in a watch. And it kind of sent me down the Rega rabbit hole to understand what, what exactly they were, because they're an organization that's unlike anything else in any country that I'm aware of. It's actually a, a nonprofit, sort of like a... What I finally landed on was that it was like a, um, a private security force that a community might hire or something. There are members and everyone pays into it. And then if you do end up getting stranded in the mountains, have a skiing accident, keep in mind, this is not a publicly funded thing at all. So you can call on the service and they will rescue you. Right. Well, they, they let the St. Bernard's loose, right? I didn't see any of the St. Bernard's, but I know that is a big Swiss. It's <laughs> too bad. It's too bad. <laughs> because you wouldn't want those things getting blown away by some of the choppers they're, they're using. You know? Yeah. So. <laughs> Give them a little cool helmet. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's the thing. So the Rega is just absolutely cool. And I really enjoyed seeing that. And was blown away that a country or a nation rather a community, let's say a community, can come together and figure out how to privately offer a service that usually the public sector picks up. And um, I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. And it only works in a community like Switzerland. So 
that was the thing that stood out the most to me was that Oris Rega watch, which this is the second one they've done. I remember uh, watching that uh, the Red Bull sponsored documentary on YouTube called The Horn. Yep. Um, which was, I th- that was Zermatt, right? Yeah, I, I think, think so. Air Zermatt. The- yeah, so those guys apparently were, are funded in a, similar, in a similar way where a lot of people who want to use the backcountry and the mountains and such have to pay in not like an insurance policy as much as a, like a support it. So we were around when you're around. Uh, it's a neat idea. Right. And that makes total sense. Yeah. Very Swiss, uh, very functional. Yeah. I got to write up the Oris Aquas date upcycle, which uh, is kind of the brand's second foray into using PET recycled plastics. Uh, the previously was for a uh, ocean conservation limited edition. And they put like a little medallion of the plastic in the case back. Now for this new model, which is a, a Salita-based unit, so it's at a lower price point than some of the, the more expensive in-house Aqua stuff. But the new model is um, actually uses a PET dial. I actually think it's a, a really fascinating way of, of incorporating an aesthetic of something like recycling or conservation into a, a luxury product rather than have it be the box that it came in or the, you know, some of the proceeds go to this or that. It's a little bit more like you get to, not a little bit, it's literally, you get to take a piece of it with you. It's cool. Uh, What what did you guys think of this? It's in a 36.5 millimeter and a 41.5, about 2,300 bucks for either one on a bracelet. So I recently have been on a quest to find, and this is, you'll see how this all comes together, but recently I've been trying to find bar tape from the nineties for my bicycle. Okay. It looks exactly like the dial of this Oris. So I finally found it, wrapped my bike, and I was thinking, damn, that Oris really matches the bar tape perfectly. You know that sort of confetti pattern, like rainbow? It, it looks exactly like the dial. So Yeah, for sure. When I saw it, I was thinking, wow, that's super, super cool. Would love to ride my bike with that bar tape and that dial. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What do you guys think? Yeah, I've got to say I absolutely love it. You know, I, I wasn't sure when I first heard kind of the, the plan behind it that it would translate, but I think I think it was a huge success. I, I really like it. Over the past couple months, I've kind of been hitting the menswear sales a little, little harder than I should be, and I've found myself kind of going in a more uh, rainbow direction okay. with like my clothing options. Finding more color. Yeah, finding more color, like really leaning on like pinks and purples and kind of paisley and stuff like that. And, and you know, I, I found that this dial really spoke to me in kind of the, the direction I've been going with, you know, my, my other clothing and, and whatnot. And, you know, I just picked up my first Oris, uh, you know, the, the Hodinkee Caliber 400 Diver 65 Oris. I'm wearing it right now. How do you like it? I, well, one, I love it. Uh, we can talk more about that yeah. later. But even though I just bought this one, I'm already thinking like, you know, my second Oris needs to be the the Aqueous Upcycle because it is just such a striking design that really is fun, different. It has a story behind it, kind of like what Cole was talking about with the the Riga Erega. How do you say it, Cole? Mm, you're gonna have to ask someone from Switzerland to be honest. But <laughs> yeah, it's called Riga. <laughs> but my, you know, I'm I'm need to see how the 36 and a half millimeter fits because you know we all know that the Aqueous wears uh, smaller than its dimensions usually say yeah. thanks to those. Um, the lugs. So I'm, I'm wondering if that might be too small for me. So I might have to go with the 41 and a half millimeter. And then, you know, I, I feel like since each dial is different, I would need to like see like 20 of them and then pick my favorite one. I don't want to just like buy one and then have it show up at my door. And, you know, I, I'd really want to pick the the one that kind of plays with color in the way that I, I like it the most. So, well, it's helpful that we uh, we carry that one in the shop. So you might actually get a chance to see more than one in one place. Uh, yeah, that's that's the hope, right? John, what do you figure on these? 
I think the it's it's the dial of the show, in my opinion. Uh, if you know, if you're looking at all, all the dials of all the watches that that came out, I think it's the certainly the most visually arresting one. And um, I think it's I think it's really cool. And I think you know you guys all make a good point about how so often it's like the packaging or maybe a strap. I mean, Oris has, has done that where it's that's the tie-in, and, and to have it be the dial, I think is just very cool for sure. And yeah, Cole, I know you went to Couture and Oris was showing there, and and at least I had seen on an Instagram post that someone had taken a picture of like a board that listed all of the kind of conservation spec models. And you don't realize in my mind it was six or seven and it's like 20. I, maybe even more than 20. It's there's yeah, so many. It's really impressive. So it's, it's definitely something that brands been working their way up to. Uh, it came up in the comments. Somebody was asking like, what happens with UV exposure? Because it's plastic, right? And uh, I was able to go back and check with Oris. And it turns out they like had an independent lab actually like do UV exposure and heat exposure and things like that to the to the dials. And apparently they don't they don't discolor in any uh, conceivable way. The other thing that, that that kept coming up to me as I was editing the the images is the choice to go with the gray ceramic insert to avoid more color that might compete with the dial. I think was like kind of just the the perfect little touch was to go with that. Uh, with that insert. Um, speaking of kind of gray tones, we've got a couple interesting titanium watches. Do we want to start at the top end? Logan, you can talk about uh, the the end of this uh, kind of line from Gruber Forzi. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean... I love this watch. Yeah. I love it in titanium, too. What a neat idea. Yeah. No, uh, James, I think you and I are kind of the, the biggest Grubel 4C fans on staff. I mean, everything that Grubel does, I find interesting. There is kind of no... I don't know. It's just everything they do pushes the limit aesthetically from a traditional finishing standpoint, from a kind of, I don't know, just, just everything is so entrancing, I find. And there's no bullshit to it. You know, it's everything is out there and is worth kind of thinking about and exploring. And um, the GMT, you know, it, it kind of puts, you know, to get a little out there. It, it kind of puts our place in the world on display. And, you know, I know that our work has been doing that with the UR100 coal, which you wrote up the most recent one. Oh, yeah. But I think the, the Grubel one is kind of even more effective in a way because you, you literally see it, the entire world uh, of this very detailed globe and you can see it from all angles. There's literally kind of a sapphire inset on the case band so that you can see the equator. And then you turn it around and you can see the... Um, you know, lower hemisphere. And it's just such an interesting piece. And, um, you know, this is supposed to be the kind of them retiring their GMT watches. The GMT Earth, of course, is kind of the most uh, recent evolution of the GMT line from Grupo 4C, which started all the way back in 2011. So 10 years ago, I can't imagine, you know, this is probably the their most identifiable watch. I can't imagine this is the end of it for all you know, for, for good. I imagine we'll see kind of the evolution of the GMT concept maybe in a different way. You know, maybe they'll expand the globe, you know, like we've been seeing from Arnold and Son in a, in a different way, of course. Oh, right. Where it's the, yeah, more, more like the whole dial. Yeah. Or, you know, we'll see it paired with a different complication. But I, I can't, I just can't imagine that this is the end of GMTs at, at Grubel. And it goes back to something I, I talked about in my story, a conversation I had with Stephen Forsey a few years ago, where, you know, when they first, when Robert Grubel and Stephen Forsey for, first started working together, of course, they're um, graduates of the Renat Papi school. I probably just butchered that, but... Um, <laughs> 
you know, when they first started working together at their own firm, they were told that everything had already been done, that nothing they could do would be new, nothing they could do would be exciting enough. And they kind of keep that mantra close to their heart with everything they do. And, you know, as they were going around back in the the late 2000s, everyone wanted a GMT watch, much like they do today. And so they, they came up with, you know, their original GMT watch as a way to prove that showing the second time zone, there, there are still new ways to do that. There's still new ways to illustrate our relationship with traveling with kind of the world around us. And I, I find what's so interesting, especially in these times where we aren't traveling, mm-hmm. but many of us own GMT watches and kind of you know, wear them just around the house or outside. They're one of the, the most popular complications for a reason. It's a way to show our relation with everyone else around us. And when you have that whole globe in front of you, I, I think that's about the best way to, to do it. Yeah, that's a, a romantic take, but a very cool watch. 11-piece limited edition, no price. I'm assuming not cheap. But 11 people, I'm sure, will be very happy. Looking at another titanium limited edition, different price point, little under two grand, 10 bucks under two grand, if you will. Uh, is the new Doxa 600 Ti. Where do, where do we land on this? It's an 80s kind of Aubrey era look, but now it's in titanium. It's very blue, not Caribbean blue. It's this Pacific blue. It's a little bit brighter. The orange accents. It's a nice size. You know, they're, they're only making 200. We don't really know what that means just yet, aside from those two, whether they'll do steel versions in different colors. Doxa doesn't usually do anything in just one color. Usually we get the core three colors. Where do you guys land on this? I, I love it. But I'm I'm inclined to enjoy a dock, so I'm, I'm wearing one now. For example, same. Let's just say, yeah. Aubrey era forever. <laughs> That's what I say. We've been waiting forever. Yeah. yeah, some pretty cool stuff. There's also a lot for them to pull from there. Yeah, no, I was I was just going to kind of add to the chorus of affirmation. I uh, absolutely love the the look of this watch, and to me, you look at it, it screams '80s fun. You know. My only regret is that it's coming out a little bit late in the summer, you know? It, yeah, that's a good point. It is a little late on the uh, on the summer parade for dive watches. You start stocking up for uh, for next year. Or, hey, you know, uh, maybe at some point you will have to chase some summer and actually get on a plane, uh, do this thing of going outside like Logan was talking about. It's a, it's a scary place these days. Beyond the Doxa, uh, you know, there's some big views from um, Ulysses and Ardan. John, why don't you walk us through this? It's it's not quite maybe as evolutionary or revolutionary as the Parmigiani side of uh, of the Geneva Watch Days news, but it was a lot of new watches, right? Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a ton of new watches. I think by my count, it was five new overall references. I think, and then it, within some of them. If I have that right, I, I might have to go back and double check that. And then um, within some of them, there were there were up to four ver- different versions. But it was uh, it's a new uh, collection called Chronometry that uh, they're coming out with, and there's just a bunch of marine torpilar. Am, am I saying that right, guys? I think so. I've actually uh, I'm not 100 percent sure, but it's you know very Ulysses Nardin looking watches. Many of them, a whole collection, and the through line is that they are referencing. You know, Ulysses Nordens are, you know, probably the best known part of Ulysses Nordens history, which is making uh, marine chronometers, which is something that it did in a major way historically. And so you have a lot of like very legible, classic, uh, yet also like clearly uh, inspired by maritime watches. The thing that's always so interesting to me, to me about Ulysses Nordens is that it, I think it's one of the like the most kind of classically designed watches, but they're also one of the very first to use um, silicon components in their watches. They really innovated in that in that direction. And, you know, of course, that's all thanks to the the former owner of the brand who um, is no longer with us. But, you know, Ulysses Nardin, uh, they just they dropped a lot of watches at Geneva Watch Days. And um, they included some enamel dials from uh, Donze Cadron, which is um, 
a really wonderful dial maker that has made dials, enamel dials for like some of like the biggest names, the best names in the industry. So they included uh, a tourbillon with a really nice Granfo enamel dial. Uh, another one, they did a, a nice blue Granfo enamel dial on a on a you know simple time and date watch. So really a big range of classically designed stuff from you listener Dan. It's nice to see UN doing something. You know what I mean? I feel like they're kind of they're a pretty quiet brand even at, at the best of times. And I think they went through a long time where they were kind of showing something that they planned on doing in a couple of years, and then we never actually saw it come. I, I can think of a couple of things that stand out in there, but it, it's just fun to see them doing stuff. I think the enamel dials look really good. These are watches that I think also are worth seeing in person if you get the opportunity, uh, because they are they are kind of a fit and finish sort of maker of watches. That's it's it's an execution level watch. I really like the um, kind of marine chronometer inspired look for a number of reasons, but I think it's one of the true, uh, this is not the right word, but ambidextrous designs that really works well from both a classical dressy standpoint and kind of a sportier look. Because one, you know, obviously looking at it with the the spade hands, the black Roman numerals, the, um, you know, very kind of white classic dial, the vertical um, subdial orientation, you know, it, it looks dressy. But then, you know, at the heart of it, it, it is a sport watch at the end of the day. I mean, I think it's 200 meter water resistance. Um, if not 200, then, you know, 100, which is more than, you know, you need. A screw down crown and the history. The history is all there. Like I can, I think they, they always sell these watches on, you know, either croc embossed straps or crocodile um, alligator leather straps. But I think, you know, throw one on a, a NATO and you've got a summer watch right there. Like that's that's a cool piece. And I, I really, really like the look of the annual calendar chronograph. You know, there's something about it that speaks to precision to me, just how, you know, long the spade hands are and uh, how they reach out to the kind of minute track. You can really see time passing that way. It's not just like glancing at, I mean, you know, with, with so many dive watches, they have like either squared off hands or kind of ladder hands with like big arrows or something like this. This is kind of a nautical influenced watch, but is all about accuracy at the end of the day. And, um, of course the, the movement inside John, I think we were talking about, it has the Ludwig Oxlin, um, annual calendar, You're right. which again, here we have this kind of the Ulysse Narden of the 2000s, which has been so influenced by Ludwig Oxlin and, um, you know, silicon watchmaking and, and the freak. And then you have Ulysse Narden of the past, which is this very classical inspired brand um, with their marine chronometer series. And there's a really interesting kind of melding there. But I, uh, the annual calendar chronograph really spoke to me. And that, that has the horizontal dial orientation compared to the vertical, which I think is kind of a, a fun twist on the traditional marine chronometer uh, layout. So, Do you think the size is going to hold them back at all? 44 millimeters? A little big for today's taste? But it doesn't not suit the watch, at least in in the images, right? Yeah, no, I think. Well, one, you know, there's these these watches don't really have a bezel, so that that is going to be a, a lot of dial on your wrist. Tons, yeah. But two, I think, you know, if we if we consider the Ulysse Nardin's typical, you know, maybe not typical, but their their clientele is more. I would say Europe facing than American facing. And I, I think, you know, there are large parts of Europe which are still kind of riding the, the large watch trend, you know, not necessarily like the UK or, or, or France, but, you know, Germany and kind of the Eastern European nations, I think uh, we still see a lot of larger diameter watches over there. You know, I could be off base there, but that is some of the trends that I've been kind of seeing, you know, online and, and whatnot. Of course, I haven't been, uh, I'm not on the ground in Eastern Europe these days. No, I suppose <laughs> not. 
but I, I am in Texas and, you know, we do like a, a large watch down here. Oh, for sure. I mean, and 44 isn't like a traditionally super large watch. It's just a little bit bigger than where we've seen some of the core manufacturers, enthusiast manufacturers operate in the last little while. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, you're speaking of that annual calendar uh, chronograph. It's not the only interesting sporty calendar watch that came out. What do you guys think of this kind of wild Moser perpetual calendar uh, steam liner? Love the placement of the date. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's uh, visually jarring in the way that it. you look at it and you're like, whoa, what's the date doing there? And then you just want to look more and more and discover all the details of the dial and so forth. I think it's one of these things that it's beauty and sort of like asymmetry, putting something where it feels like it doesn't belong, but maybe it does. Maybe that's what makes this watch interesting. Maybe that's why we're talking about it right now. I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, for me, when I think of Moser, I, I still tend to think of that perpetual calendar just because I think it was like one of the first Mosers I ever saw. Like the the Endeavor? Yeah, like that, just that very simple display. You know, that's just like it's a perpetual mm-hmm. calendar, but you really wouldn't know it just by glancing at it. You have to kind of be aware that it's a perpetual calendar to, to see, oh yeah, okay, I see how that how that works and how you'd read it. And so for like what is ostensibly a sports watch, to me, this type of perpetual calendar makes a ton of sense, you know? Not that you can't do a, a really cool, you know, steel sport luxury watch and have all of the displays and all of the kind of uh, animation uh, of a traditional perpetual calendar, but I think that it's a it's a it's a nice pairing that we see here from from Moser. Yeah, I like the colorway quite a bit as well. There's also a little little splash of like uh, speedy racing in the Riot. Uh, so for those who may have skipped this or thought that what they were looking at was a normal streamliner, this is a, a different sort of thing. It has a full perpetual calendar. And, and like John hinted to, it's, it's kind of hidden in that it's the most kind of subtle execution of a perpetual calendar you're going to find. There is a date at 4.30, which uh, Cole likes, and uh, I do not. Um, <laughs> or I guess it's more at 4, to be fair, than 4.30. But the execution of the date, I like quite a bit. It catches the light nicely. It's right on the curvature of the dial. I just think that that general placement always kind of gets under my skin. And then you have um, a, a very interesting power reserve meter that's kind of where the 10 o'clock marker would be, but it also comes inwards of the dial a little bit. And that's kind of your only hint that you're looking at something out of the normal. And then if you happen to capture the right image, you can actually see the perpetual kind of calendar hand, which is is this itty bitty hand that that operates right from the center of the dial. And yeah, if you're if you're familiar with the Endeavor perpetual uh, that we've seen in the past, it's that similar sort of thing. And then it's all wrapped in this curvy, smooth, beautifully brushed sort of steel vibe that blends right into the bracelet. My guess is these are super fun to wear. I've never held one or seen one in person. Have any of you? I have, yeah. The the original Streamliner I got to wear around for a little bit. And it's about the same size, the original, the uh, about 42, 43. I think this is 42.6, something like that. Yeah, I think so. Does it wear nicely? It does. does, it, it, does it, it probably feels really expensive, it does. for lack it feels of a better word. Yeah. Super expensive because uh, I think, and if I'm remembering correctly, even the the bracelet has like radial finishing on it or something. And it just, uh, it's, it, yeah, the bracelet feels expensive. Well, I'll, I'll kind of jump in here on uh, kind of a different note here. I mean, I'm first I'll, I'll front run by saying this is I'm not uh, as high on Moser as, you know, a lot of people are. I, I respect them a lot, and I think they do some really interesting things that are different than most people in the watch industry. But the, the aesthetics are just usually not kind of 
to my taste. Um, but I do think that the Perpetual Calendar, the original one, is one of the most interesting watches they've done. And I've also, uh, I, I also really like the Streamliner collection. So those are two of the my favorite things about Moser. But I, I feel like when you mixed them together here, it something about it didn't translate all the way. Like it, it, I think the the use of the dial space doesn't feel correct to me i mean I, th- I think it's a wonderful watch and and i mean look at that movement that's that's beautiful yeah but i i feel like it was something that in theory works better than it, it did in practice i think it's a neat thing and i would love to see one of these in person if a watch of this kind of caliber get passes muster from cold then uh I'm, I'm, it must it must be a fun thing to uh, to have on wrist for sure uh, let's see what else we've got on the list here. Oh, I mean, there's a, a range of new news from Parmigiani. Uh, Logan, you had covered that. Uh, where do you land on on you know the new Tonda and and some other stuff from the brand these days? Love it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's one of my favorite the the Roger Pont uh, limited edition for the brand's 25th anniversary. Um, it's probably one of my favorite watches of the year. You know, it's right up there with uh, the Vacheron Platinum split seconds that we saw at uh, Watches and Wonders. I'd love to kind of see those side by side and compare and contrast between the two. Um, but as a whole, I think the, the Tonda Refresh, the Tonda PF line um, is really smart. It's It looks really nice. Yeah, they do. For sure. Yeah, I think the kind of bracelet integration works really well. The chronograph, um, if you look at the design of the lugs on the chronograph, kind of it's the same design as the pushers. So you have this kind of continuous flowing uh, of the case profile, which is just really, really attractive. And again, I haven't seen these watches in person. I really want to. I'm a long-held Parmigiani fan, uh, a long-suffering Parmigiani fan, I should say. (laughs) You know, I think the brand is very individual in the watch industry. Of course, speaking about how they they own all these different sub-factories from... Jeez, I can't pronounce them. Adokalpa, Elwin for the screws, the screw factory. Uh, Cole, I know you've been there. You did the full suite, didn't you? Full suite, full Monty, all of them. Okay, nice. I've just been to the restoration workshop, and I've, it's just the most incredible thing to see see what they do. And so I, I, I don't know how you can't be a fan of that operation, um, and especially how they support the broader watch industry through, you know, uh, Vaucher with the uh, hairspring manufacturer. And, you know, they do so much for the, the it, it's so underrated how much they do for the rest of the watch industry. Oh, yeah. And for anyone listening that, again, maybe you just saw Parmigiani and you're like, this isn't relevant to me, go in and just take a look at the photos of the split second chronograph. It has this like frosted silvery matte dial with a little bit of gold accent and just a a really, really interesting non... It doesn't look like other people's watches, which is, I think, a a strength that this brand has had for a while with the Tonda and that they're making something in the same or higher price point as a lot of other really well-known, popular kind of sporty chronographs. And they make something that's very distinctive and you, you can still tell what it is from across the room. And that, that split seconds, it has a pulsometer scale, which is, you know, hot stuff by itself. For sure. All right, guys, what else kind of stood out for you? You know, we've, we've dropped some stuff in here. The, the fun thing is, is there's also some stuff that has come up that's not of Geneva watch days kind of specifically, but came out at the same time. And one of them is a, a line of watches that I really love. One of my favorite, like I always joke, kind of one of my favorite rich guy things is the Royal Oak Offshore. And now we've got we've got some new AP Royal Oak Offshores. I, I really like these. Where, where do you guys land on them? I, uh, uh, John, you wrote them up, right? That was uh, just recently? Yeah, just, uh, yeah, very just recently they dropped. Um, so basically back, I think it was back in March, AP came out with five, 
43 millimeter Royal Oak offshores along some other stuff, some, some Royal Oak offshore divers. They had these five chronographs in the 43 millimeter size, all with, you know, mega tap dial and, um, this new strap system that they came out with, the interchangeable strap system, which is, you know, as many, many brands have had for, for a while now, but AP is just coming out with it for the offshore. Uh, more recently, uh, they added five additional um, Royal Oak offshore chronographs in 42 millimeter size. So only one millimeter of difference, but, you know, like the 43s, they also have uh, an in-house chronograph movement, something that we saw first with the uh, Code 1159. However, whereas the, um, you know, the the offshore chronographs from several months ago had uh, the horizontal presentation of the uh, of the chronograph subdials. Now they're back in that traditional kind of 12, 9, 6 vertical presentation with the date at 3 that were, that is kind of like the, that is the original actually uh, Royal Oak offshore chronograph design. And so they have a steel one that looks, you know, basically like the original offshore from 93. They've got a gold one also with a blue dial, kind of in that similar vein to the original from 93. And uh, a titanium one, I believe, with a with a gray dial. And so, you know, if you if you love that kind of 42 millimeter size, that early 90s original offshore, these are definitely like they're pointing right back at that. And uh, I think they're super cool. Man, that titanium. Don't, let's be clear. It's forty thousand dollars. Yeah. But that titanium, that that speaks to me in a very big way. I like that a yeah. lot. It's so it's so. Logan was previously talking about adding color to his life. I I just routinely remove it. So a <laughs> titanium chronograph with a gray dial. I also I love to 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 your point, John, that they went to the to the extent to which these new forty two millimeter ones look like something from the very early days of the Royal Offshore chronograph. Yeah, I, I think these are I think these are a win. Well, I mean, y- y'all want to hear something that that I personally miss. Um, you know, so back in the the late 2000s, early 2010s, when the, the offshore was really kind of still all the rage, they they did all these kind of limited releases that, you know, when you talk about wacky rich guy stuff, you know, it, these tied in directly to it. And one of, one of my favorite ones was the, the Montauk Highway limited edition. I mean, who who the hell does a limited edition on about a highway to a, you know... Oh, this is cool. To Montauk. AP does. It's it's a it's a hot watch, James. You're looking at it right now. I need your. So it has a, what looks like a silvery white mega tap dial, but with um like a cerulean blue, like really bright blue accents, and then it's got a, a matching brown with blue accent strap. This has a this is a vibe for sure. I don't know. Montauk Highway, that, that those words don't mean anything to me. Actually, James, you would love the car spotting on there. Really, really good car spotting. So. That's something that's cool. Uh, Logan, when you mentioned this watch, it's so funny because I actually put it in the article. Oh, because really? that's This was my mind like kind of like went there. Uh, when I saw these watches, my mind went to like, you know, Jay-Z, Schwarzenegger. Oh, sure. Later on, LeBron, all those Formula One drivers, including Schumacher, but of course, but many others even before that. Just like to me, like to see 10 Royal Oak Offshore chronographs dropped in a year kind of like put me back in like the early aughts, you know, which for me was when I, uh, or mid aughts when I, which is when I kind of like started, started doing this. And, um, yeah, it was, it felt like a little bit, almost like a flashback. And I was thinking too about the, um, the 57th street boutique limited edition, uh, they did. So, you know, I mean, 
so you know, some people love the limited editions. Some people like hate on them, like whatever. It's just a, it's just brought back a lot of memories for me. Yeah, and and the point that I was going to make there was was similar. You know, I mean, there's all these what I would call like definitive wacky rich guy things, which I, I love, and you know that that's my goal in life is to be a wacky rich oh, guy, yeah. which I am definitively <laughs> not. You know, I'm. Uh, what, what's the alternate there? Uh, straight laced and, you know, poor, I don't know. (laughs) Fun and frugal. Fun and frugal. There we go. Um, wacky and rich is, uh, that's a later stage. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm working my way up there. And so when I saw the, this blue dial with the orange accents, Mm -hmm. you know, which I think is the first image in your article, John, uh, it brought me back to those kind of really when the, the offshore was the hot watch and they, to celebrate that, they did all these kind of wacky releases. And, uh, so I, I, I like them you know i'd probably rather have a normal royal oak but yeah. uh, like you said that um, titanium model with the gray dial the black sub dials uh, petite tap you know I, I think that's that's great yeah for sure you know cool of the uh, of these drops which one speaks the most to you is it titanium gray you going with the the bright blue orange black i have to sell you or maybe one of the 43s which are also really cool i would say titanium gray simply because that's the most interesting. I'm not a Royal Oak guy. I, I, I could learn from you, to be honest. I know you are. <laughs> I know. I just can't do I it. I mean, but. I'm not a Royal Oak guy either. Like Logan, I'm deeply in my fun and frugal stage. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm more of a Casio yeah. kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> same, same. But yeah, I would say, yeah, titanium gray. Just interesting. If I had to pick, you know. Casio's making one with a metal case now. Won't be You're too right. long until they do one with a bracelet as well. Although I, I have it on some level of authority that the only reason they don't do the 2100 or they haven't yet with a bracelet is it won't pass some of their stress tests. That makes sense. The way that it mounts to the case. I love that they're that specific. Like they won't they won't bend to make something that people are buying kits on Alibaba to, you know, <laughs> modify their their Royal Broke or uh, whatever, whatever nickname you've got. There's some pretty good ones for that. We should... Uh, do a list at some point for the show, but yeah, these, uh, these work for me. I re- I know that these aren't, they don't typically exhibit the same level of like old school enthusiasm that you get for a, a 15202 or, or an earlier Royal Oak, even some with complications, but I like the offshore, the divers long been one of my favorite watches. Uh, you know, I think the ship has sailed on, on those being a deal but they were for a little while, a few years back. And uh, I've always thought they were really, really cool watches that were surprisingly wearable. The 42 millimeter sizing with a rubber strap, it just kind of fits and it works. And they kind of, they have a t-shirt and vacation vibe that also has this thing where like you could be anywhere and it's still an amazing watch. And, and I think those two things together have always kind of entertained me at some level. Uh, let's see what else we've got on the list here. Oh, Logan, you wrote a kind of prescient article about a, a poor athlete that couldn't find a sponsor. Mm. And then only sometime later, was it what, weeks? 10 days? Yeah, it was like three and a half weeks later. Three and a half weeks, there you go. Uh, turns out, boom, sponsorship. I'm just wondering, how big was the check from Hublo when it arrived? Well, you know, we were talking earlier about the the, the LVMH cabal, you know, making <laughs> uh, making judgments and, and keeping keeping a close eye on, on what we're doing. And, and I think uh, that was one of them with Hublo jumping in and signing Novak Djokovic. Um you know, I mean, um, I'm a big tennis fan, uh, you know, varsity in high school and all that that jazz. Um, I got kicked off the high school team, which is a story for another time. How fast was your serve? Great question. Uh, it was the best part of my game. Uh, I could hit triple figures with my serve. Damn. With using the least number of words possible, how did you get kicked off? Oof. Uh, I don't know if... Uh, <laughs> Keep it real vague. <laughs> or or just, you know, uh, reasons redacted mm. from your permanent record. Mm. 
I'll, I'll update my masthead and you guys can find out my masthead photo. <laughs> It'll be on my, or on my LinkedIn bio. It'll be on my LinkedIn bio. Okay. Uh, Everybody uh, search out Mogan <laughs> on LinkedIn uh, and figure out what that's up to. But uh, yeah, so this is, this is kind of an interesting move, right? Is um, what is Hublot's, I don't know tennis that well. Mm-hmm. What's Hublot's presence in tennis? Cause this is a big, that's a huge start to go for. Yeah, they don't, Shoot, you know, I mean, I might be missing someone. Uh, maybe there was someone a couple of years ago, but I can't think of um, any kind of Hublot tennis connection other than the fact that they kind of collect, um, you know, really prominent athletes that are arguably the, the greatest of all time in their respective sport. They had uh, Pele and uh, Diego Maradona on uh, the soccer side. Um, they had Kobe Bryant, you know, the late, great Kobe. Uh, they did a couple LEs with him in the early 2010s. You know, they, they've always had an eye for these kind of partnerships. Uh, you know, I think Mike Tyson, they've had a bunch of boxing partnerships over the years. And Novak makes sense for them as one kind of a, a flamboyant personality, even though I think some of it is overstated. Like, first of all, you know, he is, as much as I love Roger Federer, Novak is going to be considered the greatest tennis player of all time. Like, that's not even a hot take at this point. He, he's just incredible what he's doing over the past decade. I don't want this to divulge into a full tennis podcast since I think I'd just be talking to myself there. But, you know, I think this is, we're going to see a lot of interesting Hublot Novak stuff to come. You know, I think that's, there's a lot of room for that partnership to grow as kind of the greatest tennis player of all time uh, and kind of the watch brand repping him. I mean, if you look at his, the other tennis players, like they, they all have other major tennis players, Roger and Rafa, they have watch partnerships that are like, right there with them. I mean, we've heard Rolex is going to keep Roger forever. He's their definitive watch ambassador. Like he is, when when you think of a watch ambassador for Rolex, Roger Federer is their guy. And I think the same could be said with uh, Richard Mille and Rafael Nadal. I mean... These are going for a while, for sure. Yeah. And uh, so Novak, the guy who's arguably, I'll say arguably for now, uh, eclipsed both Rafa and Roger to be without a tennis sponsor is something that shocked me. That's what I wrote the original article about. And I, I reached out to Seiko to confirm when their original deal with uh, Novak expired, which was January 2019. And before that, he was with AP back in the early 2010s. And he was just without a watch sponsor. Like, that's that's wild to me. Like, why, why didn't someone jump in and, and sign him? And we can say, like, who cares? But, like, as a guy that watches tennis... Oh, I think a lot of people probably care, right? Yeah, I care. You know, like, it's it's interesting to see the, the inner dynamics of how these things work. And sure, Novak's a bit of a flamboyant personality, a little bit, you know, over the top uh, in some ways. But I don't know. That's valuable risk real estate. If I was running a billion-dollar watch brand, I would have signed him yesterday, you know? So I don't know. That's, I think the match makes sense. It's not one of the ones I originally predicted. I thought it was going to be one of Tag Heuer, Rado, Longines. I had a couple others. And the one that I thought would be the best fit was Grubel um, because they have shown uh, kind of to like tennis by working with uh, Gael Malfis before. Um, But they they don't really do traditional ambassadors. And I just thought, you know, this watch brand that kind of goes over the top in everything they do, being Grubel. And uh, Novak Djokovic, who is, you know, arguably the greatest of all time, you know, would make a perfect fit. But I think Hublot works for a similar way, um, you know, because everything Hublot does is kind of over the top and uh, fun. So, yeah, I remember I saw him play at the French Open finals in 2012 against uh, Nadal. Mm. 
and uh, it was uh, it was something else. We only the the match went so long due to rain delays and other things. They ended up finishing it the next day when I was on my flight home. But it was my first ever press trip. Was to check that out, and and I remember having an entirely different respect for the sport after seeing it played at that level. <laughs> But like it's not the same sport. It's like it's it's very similar to watching a lot of non-team heavy sports where there's one or maybe two people to a to a playing field, where you see the difference between the way one person may move and the way a professional moves, and then the way the best in the world move, and and just the amount of power required to play for hours and hours and hours. And I also was you know as a North American, I've you know I've been to my fair share of you know, hockey games, basketball games, baseball games, like the kind of the pillar big team sports from here and the the level of composure among the crowd is something I'll never forget. They all got quiet at the same time. Everybody's being like very respectful. And I was like, Oh, this is a complete departure from the complete debauchery of most of the sports that I've witnessed growing up. I'll add one more thing about tennis. I mean, I think um, tennis and you can say boxing and wrestling uh, are, are, you know, the very few sports where it's really kind of mono mono and it's, you know, you're fighting the other person till one of them goes down, uh, till yeah. you win. There's no one else that you can rely on. I mean, that's why most of the time people say tennis is a mental game because you'll end up defeating yourself. All you have to do is return the other person's shot and you, you'll win eventually. You know, There's a lot more that goes into it, but it's, it's one of the very few sports where it's really all about kind of you. Yeah. We saw that with Richie Tenenbaum's famous, famous match. It didn't go his way. He had to take his socks off at one point. <laughs> <laughs> the Royal Tannenbaums. <laughs> Still my favorite tennis star of all time. I don't uh, don't offhand know what watch he was wearing. I did want to circle back with Cole about Couture in the Las Vegas show, simply because we're, we you know have been talking for the better part of an hour about Geneva watch days, and none of us went to it. And Cole was uh, you know available on the West Coast, and was able to get down to um, Sin City to check out some watches. Cole, anything from the vibe to specific models like stand out? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting question. I think you could do an entire podcast on this because something that stood out to me was the absolute normalcy of everything. It was like, just like things went right back to normal. The same people, the same things go out to dinner with brands, go to their booths. And I thought, well, you know, we spent the whole pandemic talking about how, how will things come back afterwards? Or is this a monumental shift? Do you remember all these, even like Joe Thompson weighing in, how will trade shows change? Yeah. We have the, um, fidgetal trade show, which is the, uh, you know, Geneva wash days, physical digital. That's a cursed word. Uh, I'm just going to use it. I mean, they came up with it. So, (laughs) um, we have these fidgetal shows in Switzerland and here, Couture, just it's business as usual. Uh, Las Vegas is the place for that. I mean, they're pretty, um, they're interested in getting things done. So they definitely, the vibe was just like it was last time I went to it in 2019. So it was kind of strange. So, but the, like the, the energy didn't feel like people were thrilled. Like it wasn't like, um, like going back to camp the next year and seeing your camp friends. It wasn't like that people weren't kind of like did you did, did people just hit the bar way too hard? Did they you know <laughs> okay, go, like yeah. n- nobody got any sleep? Like everybody's been sitting at home on the couch thinking about watches, and suddenly hey, watches Let's in do it. Yeah. Las Vegas and and uh, you know expensive budgets and stuff like that. Like uh, I have to, I would have assumed that people were kind of champing at the bit yeah. uh, to to be out and doing watch stuff again. I mean, I think that's definitely true. There was that energy on our side of the business. Everyone's, you know, messaging everyone in the lead up like, hey, you're going to be there and so forth. And yeah, it was. It was nice to see everyone again, for sure. There was an excitement. I think the 
Couture is such a small show, really, at the end of the day. And it's also set, you know, it's at the backdrop of Vegas where there's lots of things to do and, and go out and, and see. In terms of the actual watches, I think the stars of the show were, well, it was the, the trio of Grand Seikos that John wrote about, the limited edition. Oh, yeah, that, for they're sure. Awesome. Those are they're beautiful. They're sold out, so I'm not going to get one. But if I could, I would. <laughs> like these, I, It's okay. The secondary market's really soft <laughs> these days. You'll be fine. Well, yeah, it's funny you should say that because this is something I spoke with Grand Seiko at length about. Like, All right, there, there's another benefit. People will say things at trade shows, and I'm not saying that Grand Seiko divulged anything crazy or whatever, but brands will say things and give you insight that they just wouldn't type on an email because it's bad form or you just don't want these things in record. So I think from our perspective, going back to the trade shows, we're going to have much more informed, interesting stories. I learned a ton about those watches that I wish we had known prior to writing the piece, right? I mean, those specific watches and and where Grand Seiko's headed and so forth. But yeah, those things, they stood out to me. Put them on the wrist and it's like, oof, man, this is like Grand Seiko at its absolute best. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's encouraging to see that it seems like a lot of people were willing to go back, like investing in getting back to the pace. Yeah. And it, it seems to have come pretty quickly. I spoke to a couple of folks who uh, were operating kind of on the other side of the show and they were just saying, no, this is great. Like it seems like people, one, actually want to be here Two are really excited to actually see and handle things and like be part of the conversation again and the rest of it. So I, I think that's great. I think it's a bit of a bummer for certainly for the four of us on, on this call, but for the greater team that none of it, that we weren't in Geneva, it would have been fun if this was like a, you know, a possible and safer and less logistically problematic thing. But on the other hand, you know, we're thanks to the wonders of the internet and the fact that all of these brands had the last roughly two years to get up to speed on launching watches in a mostly digital format. Fidgetal. We were able to keep a... Stop sorry, it, Cole, stop F it. Fidgetal format, actually. It's oh, fidgetal. Uh, sorry, it took me... You said that word a couple times and, and my brain was like, what What two words are being put together there? Uh, I did eventually get to it. I'm going to not, not give it away for those of you uh, in the audience who are a little bit slow like me. Yeah, the, uh, the fact that they've been prepared to, to have the, the two sides of the fidgetal coin covered means that we've been able to, uh, where I'm losing Logan here. <laughs> I'm wrapping up Logan, I promise. <laughs> but yeah, it just means that we were able to actually experience the show and, and in some way see all the watches. Uh, I know that for those of you like John and Logan in New York, you'll probably get a chance in the next few days even to start seeing a lot of these in person as they come through the office and, and that sort of thing and, and availability and the rest of it. Uh, so maybe we can do uh, another circle back if there's anything really exciting. But other than that, uh, fellas, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a treat to have you all on. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank you for uh, being the new host, James. This is fun. It's great being here. Oh, I'm doing my best, but it's a it's a four it's a four way co host is the is the best way to look at it. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it a bunch. Uh, if you're listening and you have any questions, any follow ups, or the rest, put them in the comments below. And if you're loving the show and enjoying the new format, uh, share it with a friend. That's all I would ask for. Until next week, thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.